Good morning. It is a delight to be back here on this wonderful Sunday morning. What a blessing to hear these raindrops come down on our rooftops last night, giving us a much-needed precipitation. Our opening hymn this morning, Morning Has Broken, we all know this song pretty well. But the lyrics in that second verse are very fitting for today. Sweet the rain's new fall, sunlit from heaven, like the first dewfall on the first grass. Praise for the sweetness of the wet garden, sprung in completeness, where God's feet pass. We welcome the rain. The hills are still golden, golden brown by the lack of water since last spring. Very long dry spell. This morning, we will discuss droughts and famines in our message as we highlight passages from Ruth and Mark 12. As flower farmers, we spend most of our time at the farm. But we also visit customers and attend conventions. And two weeks ago, I had one of these double-header events. Went to Miami for a few days to attend a convention for the flower business. And then moved on to Atlanta to attend the PMA, the Produce Marketing Association, which is a trade show for produce and floral. Now, these events are great. It's a great way to hear what's going on in the industry and to connect with existing and new customers. But in every conversation that I had with all the folks for those several days, the number one question that came up virtually every time was the following. How is the drought affecting you? Do you still have enough water to grow your flowers? And isn't water getting expensive? And how bad is that drought in California anyway? Well, here, at least in Northern California, we have plenty of good, high-quality water. Now, in Southern California, it's a little bit more difficult. Uh, but the water, we still have water, but it's getting more expensive. And yes, we are in a drought, without question. By most standards, this drought is severe and possibly the worst one that California has seen in the last century. An estimated 900,000 acres have been fallowed, causing an economic loss of $2.2 billion to California's farmers. Now, looking back in time, our nation has seen many droughts. Think of the Dust Bowl in the 30s, or the Great Drought of the 50s in the Southwest in Texas, or the drought of the 60s, affecting the Northeast. Or the previous droughts in California during the 70s and the 80s. Now going back into time further, we read about droughts in the 1800s and a great drought in Europe in the 1300s. But details are getting scarce the farther and farther we go back in time. Now on the other hand, when we look at the Old Testament, it provides accurate events of droughts and famines, 
taking us all the way back to the days of Abraham. In Genesis 12.10, it describes a severe drought. And Abram went down to the land of Egypt as an alien with his wife Sarah because of the famine in the land of Israel. Then a generation later, in Genesis 26.1, Isaac moved to the land of the Philistines after a famine came upon the land of Israel once more. Then about 30 years later, there was a widespread famine all over the Middle East. And Jacob sent his sons down to Egypt to purchase grain. And in Genesis 41, 53, we read about this famine. It was so large and it affected every country. A famine so devastating, it lasted for seven years, as Joseph had predicted while interpreting Pharaoh's dream. And the Egyptians were the only nation that had stored grain during the previous seven years of abundance. Now the next time in the Bible, when, we re- when there's another major famine recorded, and it actually takes us all the way 600 years later, when there is another famine in the land of Israel, and this brings us to Ruth. The book of Ruth is found in the Bible between Judges and Samuel. In the Talmud, the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth is found together with Songs of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentation, and Esther, in what is referred to as the Five Scrolls. The passage in Ruth relating to the harvest is read during the Jewish feast of the Pentecost, the celebration of the harvest, essentially the Jewish equivalent of our Thanksgiving. Although the author is not identified in this book, it is widely believed in Jewish tradition that the prophet Samuel wrote the book of Ruth. The name Ruth in Moabite and in Hebrew both means friend or companion. Now today we don't hear the name Ruth among young children. But in the early part of the 20th century, it was a very very common name in America. Ruth is actually the name of my mother-in-law. And this description fits her very well as she is a wonderful lady. The story of Ruth starts with this famine in the land of Israel. Naomi and her husband and two sons moved to the land of Moab. Now, let's break here for a moment. For an Israelite to move to Moab, this is very noteworthy. And it underscores that this drought must have been very, very severe. Now you may ask, why the apprehension about Moab? Well, there is a rich history in the Bible about Moab, all the way back to the days of Abraham and his nephew Lot, whose daughters conceived two boys called Moab and Amon. 
through an incestuous relationship with their father. The descendants of Moab and Ammon settled in the land located east of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, in what we currently call the country of Jordan. For centuries, there was much conflict between these countries. Now Moses, after spending 40 years in the wilderness, came upon Mount Nebo, above the plain of Moab, where he could see the promised land, but the Israelites could not enter until after Moses passed away. In the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, he is very explicit about Moab and the Moabites, as he mentions this 47 times. In Deuteronomy 23.3, Moses forbids any Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants for 10 generations to be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. In other words, Moses orders his fellow Israelites to stay away from these Moabites. Don't hang out with these folks. And for hundreds of years, this was ingrained in Jewish culture, which would explain why Samuel, when he wrote the story of Ruth, kept referring to Moab and the Moabites, and repeatedly described Ruth as the Moabites. In a story covering only three pages in the Bible, he mentions this up to 14 times. Now Naomi and her husband Eli Melech and her two sons Malon and Chilion moved to Moab for a better life. And then misfortune strikes when Naomi's husband dies. And both of the boys marry Moabite girls. One called Orpah and the other one Ruth. Ten years go by and next thing we know both of Naomi's sons die as well. First her husband passes away, and now both her sons. What is going on here? Naomi has been characterized as the female version of Job. She now finds herself with two daughters-in-law, three widows in all, and no income. Things are not good. She lost everything, home, husband, and sons. And she lost even more than Job did. She lost her livelihood. She joined the ranks of Israel's lowest members, the poor and the widowed. She cries out in her grief and neglected to see the the gift that God had placed right in her path. She tells both of her daughters-in-law to go back to their mother's home. Orpah obliges, but Ruth instead embodied loyal love. Ladies and gentlemen, the core message of the story of Ruth is found in chapter 1, verse 16. In this amazing manifestation of loyalty, 
Ruth says, Do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more, also if anything but death parts me from you. Wow. Well, earlier this week, someone gave me a book called Resilience. It's written by a Navy SEAL called Eric Kreitens. In this book, I ran across a quote from Socrates. Be less concerned with what you have than with what you are, so that you make yourself as excellent and as rational as possible. Ruth had absolutely nothing. There was no obligation to stay with her mother-in-law. She remained loyal and chose to be with Naomi and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Israelites. This passage is so important. It is like the precursor of things to come. Now, Naomi and Ruth returned back to Bethlehem, back to the land of Israel, where things got better there. And Ruth goes out and glean in a field of grain, going in after the reapers, picking up the scraps of what's left in the field. Now, that word glean, the first time I heard the word gleaning was about 30 years ago. When I started working at Sun Valley, Sun Valley was still growing bulbs in those days. And the daffodils were being dark in the summertime. And there were always some bulbs left after the diggers went through. And we would go through the field that one last time to glean these bulbs still laying in the field. Now these leftovers are still good to use. Earlier this week, I visited the Humboldt Redwood Mill in Scotia, formerly Pacific Lumber, to look at some wood chips that we use as amendments in our soil mix for growing tulips and iris and lilies. It is amazing to see the scraps coming out of that mill. One could build a deck or a fence from all those scraps. Now Ruth went out into the field to glean, and this is where she meets Boaz for the first time. She stayed there until the end of the season, of the barley and the wheat harvests. And this brings us to today's reading of Ruth 3, 1 to 5, and Ruth 4, 13 to 17. Um, so please, um, these, these passages can be found on page 243 of your pew Bible. Naomi and her mother-in-law, uh, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you, so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women and you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight, 
at the trashing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the trashing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All you tell me, I will do. Now the story goes on, as Naomi instructed, and she comes home with six measures of barley. <laughs> Meanwhile, Boaz first needs to settle a claim with another family member, who has the first right to buy the land that Naomi owns. Once he has this resolved, he acquires the parcel, and this clears the way for Boaz to marry Ruth. And the, re the reading continues in chapter 4 of verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Folks, this is the ultimate story of redemption. Here we have a Moabite woman raised in the pagan worship of Chemosh, the Moabite uh, god, who on her own decides to follow the god of the Israelites. God blesses her with a husband, and not only that, she bears a son called Obed, who became the father of Jesse, the grandfather of David, and then Solomon, two of Israel's most notable kings. And this is the same Jesse as prophesied in Isaiah 11.1. 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, foreshadowing a messianic line that will bring us Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the Messiah, 1100 years later. The gift that God brought to the entire world. Now Ruth could have subjected herself to despair, crawl in a cave in depression, in depression for being a widow, or run back to her mother and feel sorry for herself. She did not seek for self-pity. Neither did she manifest the bitterness that had gripped the heart of Naomi because of her sad lot. Amid the shadows, Ruth maintained a poise, a serenity, which even her mother-in-law 
must have covered. The Lord gave, the Lord had taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naomi's self-confessed bitterness of the loss of her husband and sons, of her lack of faith, spoke of her lack of faith in God's good providence. This made me think of a story I heard on the radio just last Friday about a professor who surprised his students with a midterm test. The professor handed out a question paper with the text laying upside down, as usual. And he asked the students to turn the page and gave him an hour to finish the test. To everyone's surprise, there were no questions. A blank piece of paper with one black dot in the middle of the page. He instructed the students, I want you to write down what you see. And after an hour, the professor took the papers and started reading them aloud. All of the students had taken great length to describe that black spot, that black dot, in every possible way. Not one student had written about the white part of the paper, the blank portion. And that ultimately gives countless opportunities. This is what happened to Naomi. She was in despair and focused on that dark spot in her life. She missed the blessing that God had put in her way. Ruth is more analogous with the white part of that piece of paper. Nowhere in the story of Ruth do we read about her lamenting about the situation that she found herself in, or being in despair. Ruth seems to have calmly acquiesced in the divine will as she put her faith in God. She did not focus on that dark spot. To the contrary, the story of Ruth could fill a whole page about the good that came into her life and Israel as a whole. To bring it back to that professor, it would have taken multiple pages. Professor, I need more papers because I keep filling out all these possibilities. But this is what brings us through the messianic line and it ultimately brings us to Jesus Christ 1100 years later. Now Jesus is watching this crowd putting money into the treasure in Mark 12, 41. The poor widow put in two copper coins, worth only one penny. And he called his disciples and he said, this poor widow has put in more than all those contributing to the treasury. What a great metaphor. Jesus was very aware of his, of his ancestry. He knew the story of Ruth. He probably could recite it by heart, as he did many parts of Scripture. Ruth was the widow that had absolutely nothing. She gave all that what she had. Love, grace, loyalty, and above all, a deep trust and faith in the Lord our God. 
The book of Ruth is read during the Jewish feast of the harvest. And in less than three weeks, we will be celebrating Thanksgiving, our feast and celebration of the harvest. A closing hymn today will be Come Ye Thankful Come. This traditional Thanksgiving song is very fitting with the upcoming holiday. But it's also very appropriate given the story of Ruth today. Come ye thankful people come, raise the song of harvest home. All is safely gathered in, ere the winter storm begin. God our maker does provide for our wants to be supplied. This hymn also keenly depicts the path to salvation in verses 3 and 4. From his field shall in that day all offenses purge away. All be safely gathered in, free from sorrow, free from sin. There forever purified in God's corner to abide. Come ten thousand angels come to the glorious, raise the glorious harvest home. Brothers and sisters, let the story of Ruth teach us, teach us all to put our trust and faith in God. Allow his redeeming powers to take hold of our own lives. Follow and spread the good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And let the Holy Spirit guide us on a path to eternal life. Thank you. Amen. Amen.